Good morning. Can you hear me all right? Let's pray. Creator, we thank you for this time to learn, and we pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd speak through me. Let it be your words and not mine. If there are hearts open to hear what you have to say this morning, Lord, we pray for that. In your name we pray. Amen. So good morning. Uh, if you're like me, you're mourning the hour of sleep that we have lost, and I find every spring I'm ready to abolish the daylight savings time. I'm not a fan when we lose an hour of sleep, and in the fall I'm normally saying that we can keep it. Maybe we keep it another year or so, but this morning I'm not feeling grateful for the daylight savings time, that's for sure. Uh, you're also probably noticing my new uh, hairdo. I haven't got a haircut for a while, just like many of you, I'm sure, with uh, COVID-19. My girlfriend says I should get a mullet, but uh, I'm not too sure I agree with her on that one. Another interesting thing that happened to me last week is I was actually diagnosed with ADHD. I, I made it to a psychiatrist, and, or psychologist as they say, and uh, they said that I have ADHD. It was an end of the road thing for a long process and a long journey of going through mental health, dealing with things that I've been struggling with, and coming to the realization that that is the issue. And yeah, you're probably wondering why did it take me 22 years, uh, elementary school, high school, and an undergraduate degree to realize that I had a learning disability, but it was uh, one of those things where you don't realize you're struggling when you don't have a reference point. You kind of assume it's normal. But I got there, and the diagnosis really helped me feel validated and, and normalized that what I was feeling was there was a reason for it. And I haven't started medication or a treatment yet, but I'm really excited to because I'm really hopeful that it'll bring a sense of order to my brain's chaos. Chaos to order. Uh, there's a preoccupation in the ancient world for this very theme, chaos to order. If you spend any time studying ancient pagan religion, uh, you'll know that this is true, especially in places like Babylon, Sumeria, Assyria, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Almost every ancient culture had the same worldview that God or the gods created the world out of chaos. And they also had this idea that the chaos was synonymous with water. So you see this imagery in the Bible as well. The seas, the lakes, they're all synonymous with chaos or evil or even Satan. And this is the same in the Babylonian creation story where we find Tiamat and Marduk. And I'm going to give us a quick, uh, cool lesson about the Babylonian creation story. So they start in Babylon with two primordial beings, Tiamat, the salt water or chaos, and Apsu, the fresh water. These are the two gods that are, are kind of the essence of the world. And those two gods decide to create a bunch of lesser gods. But eventually, once they have these lesser gods, they get tired of them. It's kind of like ancient Greece where they get tired by the noise of, and the botherings of the, the lower gods. So they decide to get rid of them, to kill them. But the, the lesser gods, they don't like this idea. So they, they come together and they, they embolden Ea to kill Apsu. So they end up do killing Apsu. And then they meet again and they, they commission this god named Marduk. They commission Marduk, and they meet Tiamat in battle. Marduk slays Tiamat, cuts Tiamat in half, stands upon her carcass, and cuts her in half again, and separates the waters and forms heaven and earth from her parts. He establishes the stars and the moon to govern the seasons and months. And that is how Babylon claims the world came to be 
And while Israel did not share the same beliefs about the gods that Babylon had or the way the world came to be, they shared a very similar worldview. We find that in Genesis. In the beginning, there was chaos. Then God brought light into the darkness and waters were separated and given boundaries. Forming land that brought forth living things and beauty. God created humans to participate in and enjoy that beauty. We've heard this before. It was good. It was good creation. Then the people God made in his own image brought the chaos back. And there was a new darkness, a new stormy sea, new wilderness. In this first creative act, God acts as a savior and deliverer, almost like Marduk does in Babylon. But in Genesis, his first creative act moves the world from chaos to rest, barrenness to fullness, death to life, separating the waters from the earth, creating a barrier. And now I may hold a different opinion to you on whether Genesis 1 to 11 is 100% literal, literal or not, but right now that's not important. What we must agree on though right now is how deeply theological this first creative act is and how it affects how we see God and what his intention is for the rest of the Bible and for us. God brings order from chaos. This concept is crucial because it affects everything else in the Bible. Every other story has this undertone because it is crucial for the Jewish worldview. I just want to make a quick note before we move on that if I refer to sin um, or separateness from God, I could use that synonymously with chaos, or I could use shalom. You know, I love that term. I can use that synonymously with order. So if I say that, that's what I mean. So let's move on to John chapter 3, the reading we saw earlier. We find Jesus talking to a man named Nicodemus. And this is interesting that we find Jesus in a private conversation because in chapter 2, we see him turning water from wine and we see him upturning the temple. Two very public and two very wild acts that he does. But he, he, he juxtapositions chapter 3 into a private conversation with this man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a pretty, pretty important man. He's pretty much a politician, a priest, and a professor all in one. He's a Pharisee. He's someone of the religious elite. He's an important person. But in this private meeting, Jesus, he basically shoves, <laughs> switches his whole worldview on his head, and he proves to him that he really doesn't know as much as he thinks. In verse 14 of chapter 3, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So here Jesus is referring to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 to 9, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, they're stuck in the desert in their 40 years of wandering. And in this specific action, Israel turns away from God and says, God and Moses, why did you make us leave Egypt? We have no food out here in the desert. We hate it here. And basically God punishes them by, by, with their lack of faith in the wilderness and, and he brings a bunch of snakes and the snakes harass the Israelites, ending up killing them because they're very poisonous. So Israel realizes their sin and realizes what's happening. They turn to Moses and say, Moses, help us. Go to God and find an answer for this. Moses asks God what to do. God gives him the answer. He says, find a bronze image of a snake, mount it on a pole, hoist it up, and if that snake will ward off all of the other snakes, and if, even if the Israelites are bitten, they can look at this snake and they will be healed. It's a pretty wild story, but this is the story Jesus is referring to. 
Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up like this snake. He is referring to his own execution to be similar to the snake. What did the snake do? Well, it was in the Old Testament, salvation um, meant a physical deliverance from oppression. So the snake brought physical deliverance from oppression from the other snakes, the image of that snake, I mean. He brought salvation to the Israelites as he delivered them. There is a common paradigmatic story in the Old Testament uh, that where Israel messes up, Israel cries out to God, God hears them, comes down to rescue them. This is the common pattern we see all throughout the Old Testament, especially in Judges when we see the cycle of apostasy. But of course, that's not today's topic. We see it now in the wilderness where they're crying out, Israel's crying out, and in their crying out, they're showing their faith in God because in their hard times, they're going back to him. In the chaos of this wilderness that they found themselves in, Israel looked to God to bring back order. And Jesus says that's what he's going to do, but for all time. Jesus must be lifted up in the same way as the vessel of God bringing back ultimate order, ultimate shalom. And this time it would be for eternity, not just for that moment in the wilderness. He's making this allusion to the crucifixion because he's saying that he's God's ultimate act of bringing order to chaos. We see how this order comes in the later verses in chapter 3, in verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now we often hear John 3.16. We often tune it out because we know what it says. It's great that we hear it in context of chapter 3, but I want to read it again, this time in the message version. And I know some people have different opinions on the message version, and even though we shouldn't just use the message version, it's an incredible tool to supplement what we know, and I find that it always brings a new perspective. So here's John 3, 16 to 18 in the message. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need to be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been put under death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. I think the message really highlights how God's intention is not to condemn. We need to see that. We need to see that God's radical act of love comes first, not the condemnation. That's, that's important because it, it changes the way we see, how we see God's opinion of us. God basically gives us the freedom to choose whether or not to trust in Jesus. And the condemnation comes from our, us, ourselves, and not God. Verses 19 to 21 paint a beautiful picture of how humans always cling to chaos because of our actions. It is our willingness and not God's forcing the condemnation on us. 
And I'm going to replace some words as I read 19 to 21 to make my point. This is the verdict. Order has come into the world, but people loved chaos instead of order because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates order and will not come into the order for fear and that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the shalom of God so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been seen in the sight of God. Humans have made it their habit for a very long time, <laughs> since the beginning, to cling to chaos, to cling to sin because of our evil desires. It is God who continually renews us and creation back to himself, bringing this order from chaos. As we just saw, the ultimate act of renewal was through Jesus, who was lifted up just like the snake in his crucifixion. So we see this pattern chaos to order, wilderness to exalted, exile to promised land, broken to redeemed, evil to light, sinful to righteous. They're basically all synonyms. And as we say chaos to order today, it's a new perspective, but it's very similar to what we always hear. And while this is not the entirety of the multifaceted gospel, it is certainly part of it. And as it says in verse 15, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That is the gospel at its core. Belief in our wilderness means belief in Jesus, which leads to exaltation, just as the Israelites were exalted. It's the story of humanity that we've heard before. We are sinful and are in need of a savior. We've heard that. We are in the wilderness and are in need of deliverance. We are in the chaos and are in need of order. So I'm saying this because now that we understand how this started at the beginning, we've seen that in Exodus, we've seen it with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, we've seen it in Jesus, chaos to order. We can even see it in, in the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, we have new creation, the final ultimate order. So we've seen it run longitudinally all the way through the Bible. So we can assume that it'll continue into our own lives, right? So I hope we understand this point. When we see this pattern in our lives, we can know and rest assured that God is moving. When we see the pattern of chaos to order, in our own lives, we can know and rest assured that God is moving because he has moved like this, he is moving like this, and he will move like this in the future. So for me, I know uh, that my long journey of mental health and, and self-discovery, ultimately ending with my diagnosis, has been God moving me from chaos to order, to order, to shalom, to a more fuller understanding of myself, a fuller, a fuller faith in him, knowing that he's working in me continually. And while you may not relate exactly to my story and everything that I have been through, maybe it's something different for you. Maybe it's a relationship that is becoming more whole in the last, last few months. Maybe the changing of the seasons in the last few weeks has, has brought you more joy, more serotonin to your brain. Perhaps you've adopted a pet and it's bringing you happiness. Maybe you started a new hobby and you find you're good at it. We can see these things happening in our lives, things coming into order, coming into shalom. And I urge you to see that that is God moving in your lives. We shouldn't ignore that. 
because it brings us to a fuller understanding of how God is bringing us to a fuller understanding of shalom. Don't ignore these moments. Find these moments and be thankful. And if you reflect on the last few months to a year and you find that, you find those moments, cling to that. Cling to how God is moving. And, and you can use that knowledge and see how God's moving your life to look forward into the future. So you're able, better able to recognize when he is moving. If you can't relate to that, if you can't see that at all in your last little bit, um, let's pray for it. Because, because that is how God moves. We've seen that. And that is how God can move in your life. And that is how God will move in the end as he redeems new creation. So let's pray for it. And let's pray right now. Creator, may we, through our lives and through our worship, clearly be a shelter for the, from the wilderness, a refuge from the chaotic seas, like streams of water in the desert, shade in a hot and orderless land. And we pray that you will open eyes to see and allow ears to truly listen and give understanding that calms all fear and free tongues to speak words that are fluent and clear. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Shalom.